welcome, welcome, welcome to today's episode of Retirementals. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're right. This isn't the energetic tones of Abraham Okasanya just blasting through your airwaves. In fact, it is me. My name is Jake Usher. I am one of the producers here at Retirementals. And it's a pleasure and a privilege to be speaking to you guys today. So a few of you might be wondering why I'm actually here. Right? And it, it's a very, very fair comment. I'm here to introduce our Advisor 3.0 content we've got running over at Retirementals at the moment. We put an episode out last uh, last week, it was, in fact, um, about one of our breakout sessions. We're going to do exactly the same again today, which is great. And we've got one more for you next week, which are, I guess, double great. So yeah, I'm just here to give you guys a heads up. I know we threw the barrel at you last week, not really introducing what else is actually going on, but here we are, rectifying. If you did miss any of our um, Advisor 3.0 stuff, please go, go ahead and view our recap page we've got on um, our website. Uh, timeline.co forward slash advisor 3.0 you can find it all there which would be great and whilst you're online i tell you what you might as well do you might as well just leave us a review what a what an interesting idea that'd be if you haven't done it already please leave us a review it'd be great good or bad we'll take the honesty honesty is um honesty is usually the better one that'd be perfect as well so just to give you a bit more context about the braggart session you're just about to hear uh, it's titled growth strategies for ambitious planning firms it features the likes of um, our very own hugo white which is great. Um, Gaynor Rigby, Alan Smith, Tim Horrocks. So let's be honest, pioneers, right? Pioneers of the industry. Um, we've got a few just literally just coming up. So you're definitely going to enjoy this one. They're all great. This one in particular, they're incredible. So without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? You're listening to Retirementals. three phenomenal uh, panelists on our session today. Uh, firstly to my left is Gaynor Rigby, uh, who is a, um, a leader with the focus of driving transformational growth for an ex-managing partner at Equilibrium Asset Management. We also have uh, Tim Horrocks, who's the founder and managing partner of uh, Rockwealth, uh, a financial planning firm with, with offices across the country. And lastly is Alan Smith, CEO of Capital Asset Management, uh, host of a really fantastic podcast called The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, uh, as well as, as I'm sure of you will also know as well, the co-host of the brilliant Trap podcast, so The Real Advisor podcast. So thank you very much for all attending. Um, and uh, if I can all just please have a, a quick round of applause for all of our guests this morning. So before we sort of get into any of the bones of uh, of today's discussion, I just would like to ask all of our panelists to do a very brief uh, summary of their career journeys to date, um, and then we'll sort of start to get into, into the actual panel discussion, if you don't mind. So again, uh, just to okay. my left, so that'd be fantastic. So my career actually started out in North America. I was one of the, I was the 14th employee for an entrepreneurial coaching organization called Strategic Coach with Dan Sullivan, that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, that organization and it was the perfect place for me to kind of earn my stripes it was a growing business I got to be involved in all areas of it um, the clients at the time were probably about 60% in financial services and so I got to learn about the challenges of what was going on within the industry um, I was there for about 18 years um, opened the strategic coach office in the UK um, and then left and through various kind of twists and turns, ended up being the managing partner at Equilibrium, which is in the Northwest. We started with about 120 million of assets under management, team of just over 20. And at the point of my departure, we had over a billion of assets under management, a team of over 90, 
Um, we were in the Times Top 100, Top 10 companies to work for for the five years, and they've continued to be in the top 10. Um, we launched our own funds. We had a 99% client retention rate, and generally I like to think it was a very robust and well-run business. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Tim. Um, yeah, started 20 years ago, so qualified 2003, and I spent time working in bank insurance. I worked for people like Lloyds Bank, HSBC. I was a SJP partner for three years. Um, then I worked for a couple of different independent firms through um, networks and also directly authorized firms. And I decided 10 years ago to, to found Rock Wealth based on kind of what I'd learned from the other firms, what was good about them, what was bad, the pros and cons of kind of networks, directly, directly authorized, multi-tie, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, tried to take the best of all those things to make a, make a solid, good firm. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, Ernest Lang. Yeah, good morning. Um, I've, had, um, I've had two jobs in my life. My, my career started off working for a big product provider and I stayed there for 14 years and I had an opportunity to step away and effectively create what was a um, literally a one-man band uh, operating from a small room above a shop in London's Victoria and spent the last, that was, and that was 2004. So for the last 19 years, found every single way not to grow a business, made mo more mistakes than you could ever count. I'm happy to share some of them later on. But you know, brick by brick, client by client, we've effectively grown our business organically to where we are right now, you know, independent chartered financial planning company with about half a billion in assets under management for about 300 or so families um, with a very targeted focus, which again, we can talk about uh, in terms of the, the niche and the sector specialisms that we enjoy working with. Brilliant, thank you very much. Um, so what I wanted to start with actually for this time of discussion is when, when we first had a, had, a, um, had a meeting about what we we're gonna discuss today, um, Alan sort of really struck me with one of the one of the one the, one of the sort of the impact statements. He's, and you said sort of growth doesn't happen by accident, and and what I took from that is is um, you need to have a plan or a strategy in place literally from from day one. Um, so I'd really love to just really just start if you don't mind, Alan, just sort of talking around what sort of growth that doesn't happen by accident sort of meant for you, and and, and sort of really where the sort, of sort of you laid the foundations for your vision at where you started in two thousand and four, uh, and we can sort of maybe sort of Sort of go from there. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that's the point because I didn't have a, I didn't have a vision. I mean, my, my vision was to, um, was to earn enough money to pay the bills next month. When, <laughs> when, I, when I first got started, and anyone who's had a sort of startup operation from scratch knows that uh, experience. And it wasn't until some years later when you you kind of, I mean, simply grew, as I say, or um, organically over a period of time. And some years in, when there's when there's a team of us. Um, I, I sort of paused for breath and said, right, what does good look like for, 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 the, for the rest of us? What I understand in, in, in actually most industries and most businesses, and it applies very much to financial services, are there are different strategies. There are a huge number of highly successful, what I refer to as lifestyle businesses. In fact, there's another um, um, talk going on right now, I believe, and kind of, as I understand it, kind of solo advisor, who, which can be highly successful, and it's a kind of cash cow business. They're probably not gonna scale particularly um, particularly well, and you can be very successful doing that, or you can go after some, some material growth, some, some strategic growth over a period of time. That involves a lot of reinvesting of capital that looks and, and, and encourages you to look at all sorts of different opportunities. I sat down with my team then at the time, or the senior team then, um, and I think it was five of us in a room, and I said, right, no, no, no conferring, what is your vision of this business over the next five or 10 years? Write it down on a piece of paper, and let's just compare notes. Five of us in the room, there could not have been five more different you know, visions to what the future, which is quite interesting, 
in terms of what, so that that encouraged us therefore to you know unpack the whole thing have you know healthy discussions and debates with it within the team because some were looking for a much more lifestyle type business which is perfectly fine and others were saying no we're going after significant compounded growth over a period of time so you've got to take the time to re be really clear because every action you take after that um, is based upon predicated on the, the decision that you've taken in terms of you know are you a lifestyle are you a scaled up business Brilliant. thank you um and, and tim as, an, as, a, as a founder of a business as well so what would you say were the conditions um that you found that that made you establish a, a really successful sort of national ifa or a financial planning practice um and so what contributed to to the, to the conditions that that enabled you to do that um, well, initially it was like Alan; it was paying the bills. <laughs> so that was the first step: is making sure you kind of survive your first year um, as, as a startup business, and then learning from your mistakes. So it probably took five years to actually have learned from the mistakes to get to the point that it was, uh, you know, a successful-looking business, ready, well, a business that was ready to be successful. Um, and then it was almost I don't know, brainwave, but an idea thinking, well, it's taken me this long to learn how to do this, how to work out process, procedure making the client journey efficient, the marketing side of things. I mean, I'd spent, you know, I haven't had a job since I was 28, I'm 43 now, so I'd spent a lot of period of time trying to make a, a living from kind of 28 through to 33, which was when I founded Rock Wealth. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to start a business, it's hard to market, it's hard to get clients. So learning from that experience and thinking, well, there are other people in the situation I was in at the time of trying, you know, maybe wanting to start a business or to grow a business, how could I kind of help scale mine and help scale them at the same time? Um, and the idea then was the networks are saying, well, you can kind of have what we've learned along the way, the process, the procedure, the marketing, the branding, kind of the, yeah, the whole the whole client experience as well. Um, you know, financial planning firm in a box kind of scenario. So then that gives a scale to be able to reinvest, make those things better, make the education better. But it was all very organic, really. That wasn't the vision day one. It wasn't, let's have national kind of network of advice firms. That's, that's you know, organically happened over time and it's it's learning from mistakes and that's kind of one of the the things is you've got to you know, have to make mistakes but they're the kind of the most valuable things yeah and, and, and we'll loop back on in terms of the strategy you use to create a national firm uh, and again obviously you you sort of came into uh, equilibrium so so how did you art sort of articulate what i guess potentially was that vision and, and then the vision that you had brought in to to create into a firm that was that was already sort of a, you know, a relatively high numbered employee yeah. firm. So I, I didn't have to do the hard part, which was starting one. Yeah. I got to come in when it was relatively of a size. Um, and the other key thing is, is I'm not an advisor and I've never been an advisor. So my role very specifically was to come in and run the organization. So I didn't have the um, kind of distraction of also having to look after clients. My focus always was about, we're gonna grow it. and. I'm a big fan of numbers and spreadsheets. And so it, I would say at its core, we decided we wanted to grow 10 times in 10 years. And I set about creating a spreadsheet with the starting assets, figured out underlying growth, figured out what we would need to get from um, new clients. So we called them new, new, which was new, new clients and also new money from existing clients and built a spreadsheet around that and then very, I call it having a goal in my crosshairs. We very, very specifically had what it was that we wanted to do, what we wanted to achieve each year. And that's how we set about every year was how are we gonna get there? And so I would say 
from a more kind of granular level was it was spreadsheet numbers and being absolutely determined that that's what we were going to accomplish that then extrapolates down into figuring out when you're going to need additional advisors what your support team's going to look like um how you wanted to I think the nuance is that people get into, to, especially advice firms, they are advisors that become business owners. And at some point, you need to flick over into you are a business owner that happens to be in financial services. And I think that very kind of nuanced way of thinking about it kind of shifts how you start to look at your business. Yeah. Hugh, can I, I'm going off piste already, um, <laughs> because just because Gina just said something which um, reminded me of something. So in, in, in my firm, when we were clear about our, our growth strategy, which is most most businesses of, of the size that we are, are now, never mind when we were a bit smaller, the um, you know the, the founder or the MD or whatever is an advisor. Most spends you know at least eighty percent of the time seeing clients and 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 dealing with all that day to day stuff. So I had to take, and this is part of the you know the vision, the specific, and it's and it's it's not a great thing necessarily to to do because I enjoyed um, working with clients, but I knew that I was a bottleneck in the business. There was only so many hours in the day, and I couldn't get behind all the some strategic initiatives. So um, to quote my friend Rob over there, I went off the tools. I'm I'm do I don't deal with clients anymore, and I haven't done for years. So that creates a lot more capacity, just you know, thinking, operating, opportunities that, that are created. And it's very, very hard to do if you are really going, out, going after significant scale to be spending most of your time dealing with clients. There's not enough time. Yeah. So that's sort of a classic we're sort of working in the business instead of working on the business. Um, I still do look after clients, by the way. So I still look after about 50, 60 clients. And for me, it's important that I understand what the role of a financial planner is because that is what the business is. It's a financial planning business. But you definitely need to be able to outsource tasks. You can't, you can't do everything yourself. You need to be able to outsource or insource. You know, if you can bring the people in, do it. But you, ca you can't do everything, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and, so, and so in my role at Timeline, so I, 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 just, I talk with advisors day in, day out, and they, they all come in all different shapes and sizes. But one of the things that we always sort of often ask is what do your end clients sort of look like? Um, and how have you targeted your sort of your specific client target market? And one of the things is going more of a generalist or more of a niche route in terms of really sp specific um, sort of industry sectors where you try and find your clients in. So if we could just sort of touch on your routes and where you think uh, advisor should be going in terms of you're focusing on a niche market or actually being more more of a generalist uh, advisor again what would your thoughts be on that so I would um, so Colin Lawson who was the founder um, had kind of decided what his ideal clients were through a series of exercises he's done at strategic coach which was um, retired wealthy people who had time to come to meetings and because he didn't want to travel anymore <laughs> and luckily we were, we're in a postcode area in the south of Manchester where there are lots of those people. So we were able to dictate, there was enough money there for us to be able to kind of hit our target goals with having, without having to diversify. It was very helpful in understanding what the niche was that when you were marketing and doing your communication, you really only had to speak to one audience. And so that became very helpful when you're um, creating your documentation, uh, understanding what people's kind of concerns were because they were generally similar. We didn't have, you know, a lot of younger people or a lot of, um, you know, middle-aged people who were still acquiring their wealth. We were quite niche and that was very helpful in just generally understanding who our target market was and uh, how to speak to them. Brilliant. And obviously, uh, Tim, I know you're, 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 you've gone down a slightly different route in that respect. Um, so what, was, what is your take on sort of growing... Uh, from a target market perspective? Yeah, I, I never really liked the idea of niche um, 
client targets. So saying, well, I just look after dentists or I just look after doctors or whatever it is. I think it's more about we look after people who will benefit from financial planning and can afford it. Really, that's the important thing. You know, we wouldn't be able to look after loads of people who can only afford to pay us, you know, X amount because it wouldn't be efficient. So you've got to have the right kind of affluence. Um, but otherwise, I, I don't really like the idea of niche. I think you're kind of you're limiting your options of growth and who you can market to. Um, and, you know, frankly, whether someone's a dentist or they're a plumber, you know, if they need financial planning advice, they've got goals, objectives for the future, and they can afford the planning. I, you know, I'm very happy to work with them. And this also brings variety. You know, I think I'd be bored stiff just looking at you know the NHS pension scheme every day for my clients. You know, <laughs> I'd rather there's a bit of variety. Um, and you, you know, the ideal client is kind of pre-post retirement, kind of maybe ten years pre, ten years post. That's kind of when the exciting stuff's happening. You kind of you, you, you're helping them, coaching them to retirement. You're kind of easing into it. That's really enjoyable. I really like that time. But you know, what job they do, you know, frankly, not not too bothered. <laughs> Interesting, nice people to work with. Sure. And then um, moving from clients back to actual the structural operations of a business and, and actually growing that, um, it's, it's fantastic to have you all on here because you've all gone through different ways to actually grow a business. Um, Alan, you've, you've touched on the, on, the, on, the, on the point that you know you you, you were focused and, and grown uh, as a single structured business, which is obviously very different to, to I know Tim's experience. So what we'd love to sort of very quickly touch on is really how do we um, sort of scale at uh, the structure of a business in terms of a single structure, like, like what, what, what capital has, versus something along the lines of, of Tim, which, which we'll, we'll touch on afterwards. Um, yes, yeah, so I mean, we are, I think, on this panel. My, my firm is probably the most um, sort of standard firm uh, that exists out there, which started, as, a, as I say, as a one, one person and grew organically um, bit by bit. And actually, just looping in the conversation we just had a, a moment ago, I think this is relevant to it as well, because, and it's great to have a point of, uh, of difference, Tim, because I completely believe in, in niche and, and, and sector specialisms, and, and we've been after a particular market, and that then feeds into your operational structure as well, the sort of people that you hire, recruit, I think that you, uh, if you are going, if you have, as, as we have, and we've evolved it over the years, we're very, very targeted and specific, you know, we deal with, um, with, with business owners and, and, and entrepreneurs around us sort of pre and post business sale and exit, and even that is, is micro niche in terms of, they tend to be uh, media, media clients, television, film, creatives, uh, advertising, all that sort of stuff. And there's a particular type of person that's, that, as there is, I guess, with you know, dentists or whatever, there, there, is, there are some characteristic, characteristics of that profile and that individual. I personally think that is an important part of. It doesn't, if you, if you become, I mean, I, it's very hard to dominate any market. There's, there's all, whatever it is, unless you've got absolutely micro niche. But you can dominate that and then you can expand out, yeah, I think is the point. But just to link that, link these two points together, then we begin to recruit people and hire people that have got experience of working with people like those. And for example, we, we've, and also the whole, you know, big believer in the, the, the kind of behavioral stuff. Really think that's, that's, that's so important. And, and it relates to a lot of the clients that we work with who tend to be creative, right brain sort of people. So the conversations we have, and so we, we've actually hired people who've got degrees in psychology more than they've got degrees in maths, for example, because, so that's part of our kind of, our recruitment strategy, the people we've got. It, operationally, we, we've, we've tried a number of different things. We effectively operate pod, pod structures, if that's, the, if that's the, the point you want to, so which I think are infinitely scalable. So our, 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 our traditional pod that we have is a, an advisor. All our advisors are, are qualified to chartered level and above. Advisor, uh, power planner, we don't call them power planners, we call them associates. I think that's just a, a differentiator um, who are also qualified to chartered level and an administrator. And each one of those is a, is a, is a business unit. 
uh, and they're all they kind of run their own P and L. They run their, they're, they're designed to be profitable. They've got to create profits for the company, um, and they've got a lot of autonomy, which I think is important as well in the business structure. I'm sure Gaynor will back me on that. Um, we you hire smart people, you encourage them to do their own thing within the kind of we call it freedom in the framework. You've got an operational structure that works really well, but you don't want to hire really great people and and dictate what they must do uh, day to day. So the the pod structure gives them that that autonomy, allows them to do their own thing, you know, within within boundaries. Yeah, uh, sort of touching on that autonomy, Tim, I'd really love to get your take on on the growth of Rockwell. Because as I mentioned, you know, it's, a, it's a national financial planning practice. Um, and I'm sure there's a number of people sitting in the audience that would really love to understand what, it, what where you came from a single Rockwell uh, sort of hub to where Rockwell is with multiple locations across the country. And I think that is a growth strategy for, for, for some of the audience. It'd be really interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, so I think it stems from the work we started to do to educate clients. So we became evidence-based uh, eight years ago now. Um, but if you think about it, we've been doing this for 20 years. It means that there was 12 years, I believe, in active fund management. Um, so I thought, well, it's taken me this long to kind of get to this point. So my clients have been you know, advised to take this stuff along the way. And it's taken me a long time to learn why I shouldn't be doing that and why we should be taking an evidence-based route. So that involved then um, you know, producing educational content, reduce the documentary. Once, as soon as we kind of started investing in that stuff, which is expensive to do, you think, well, you know, I can educate my clients in you know, Cheltenham, Cotswold kind of area on that, but other people in different locations could use that same kind of material. And I'm not going to have clients in you know, Aberdeen or Brighton or Cardiff, or it's highly unlikely. Maybe you know, post-COVID in the Zoom world, that's more, you know, more likely. Um, you think, well, we can use that resource. It could be a common resource. There's more we can do. There's more content we can produce. And then we've got a common budget as well. So it's, you know, a lot of it was driven really around marketing and economies of scale. Um, so it's kind of growing the brand, growing that trust. You know, companies like St. James's Place, where you know, I, I mentioned I was a partner there before, are really good at that. They're really good at putting their brand forward so clients have trust. They're working with a big national company. It gives them security. You know, a lot of the time, they're not. They're working with kind of small individuals. You know, they, there are some bigger practices, um, but clients give them that security. And again, it's the marketing side of stuff. You know, if you've just got to produce you know, one type of letterhead or one type of website design or one kind of you know, whatever product literature, there's just loads of economies. Um, and from having started a business, all that stuff costs a lot of money. You know, if you're designing you know, literature, websites, you spend an absolute fortune on that stuff. You know, if you can start day one and you've got that and it's there, um, it, yeah, just a lot of value for everyone involved. Uh, again, it's then just moving sort of the operations of a business and, uh, and, and, and running and scaling a business, Obviously, one of the key challenges for, for anyone who's, who, who's, who's in that position is sort of recruiting, retaining high-quality team members. So what would your uh, take on be or, or, your, or, your, or your tip bits on, on recruit, you know, the right kind, right kind of recruitment and the right level of retaining those, those key talents within the business? Yeah, so we were, on the, like I said before, on the Times top 10, top uh, 100, top, in the top 10, top 100 companies to work for. And... There's a number of things around it. You, When you start to get clear on the purpose of your organization and what your vision is, that's easier to articulate. And then that starts to attract a person that that is the right place. So sometimes you, especially earlier on, we would hire somebody on paper that would look like it was a fit. But culturally, because we were a pacey organization, we made decisions quickly, there was no place to hide, that isn't going to work for everybody. So the clearer you are about what type of organization that you want, um, it starts to attract those people. And then the people that work for you start to tell their friends, because you're a great place to work. 
I think sharing the vision is a huge, huge part of attracting the right person. It's very difficult to be in a role and not understand where the organization's going, to not understand where the successes are, not to understand why you're being asked to change something, or especially in an organization that's growing, it can feel like things are changing all the time, and in reality, they are. Um, and that's not easy for some people. So to always be including them in the journey and sharing an element of the rewards is kind of a, a loop and a cycle. You, there are things that you can do when you get bigger that become not about just what someone's job is. It's about them buying into the ultimate purpose of why you're in business and what you're doing. Um, there's a great book called The Vivid Vision by Cameron Herald, which is about articulating your vision and being able to share that with the team so that they understand why you're doing what you're doing. And to have regular meetings or um, sharing goals and targets and what the wins are and what's not going great. So it becomes, you're building a community really, and then that will attract the right type of people. So then when, once you've got those people you know, through the door, um, I guess, I guess, sort of, Tim. How do you then drive growth uh, of an actual of a firm once you've got you know the, the foundations in place, the right people within the right positions? How do you then say set about driving driving that growth in the business? I think yes, a massive challenge is people. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the good people, not necessarily even the good people. Um, I always just kind of think about what would I have liked to have done, um, and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to start start my own business. Um, and that's why kind of a network side of thing works for me because I'm used to working with entrepreneurs. My, a lot of my clients are entrepreneurs. I was an entrepreneur, still am an entrepreneur. Um, I get to work with other entrepreneurs setting up their own businesses, which is great. Um, in terms of staff then, I think, well, why would I stay in a role? Why would I have stayed in a role when I was younger? Um, and it would have been things like remuneration um, and a stake. You know, you've got to have a stake in the future success of the business. Otherwise, ultimately, you're going to be good enough to leave and do your own thing. Um, and if they are good enough to leave and do their own thing, you want them to stay where you are <laughs> to do their thing and help you, you know, all benefit from it. So I think if you're going to have senior people be a massive part of your business, they've got to have kind of some kind of stake, either kind of you know now or they've got to earn it along the way. Um, yeah, I think that's hugely important. Otherwise, you're going to lose the good people eventually. Can I just come and come and say one thing then on the on the, on the people side of things as you. As you evolve and grow, I agree with everything that's been said about creating this vision and sharing the vision and continually loop, looping back and reminding people just because you've got it in your head doesn't mean that everyone always remembers it to the same degree. One of the biggest challenges and one of the most kind of awkward, difficult things that I've ever had to go through through this process is letting go of people who no longer, we, the company's moving at a pace and, and, and certain people in the company are, are, are going at that pace and the people that, w that worked with you five years ago or something, they just, they don't want to. They don't, they don't really want to be part of that. And I have had, I mean, not many, thankfully, but I have had a couple of just really sort of bad experiences. I never would enjoy that sort of thing. People haven't really done anything wrong, but it, it's more like you know, I've got to let them, set them free because we're just, we're, we're, we're raising our own standards, continually raising our own standards, getting more qualified, doing whatever it might be. And they just don't want to do that. So parting company is something that has to be done. People that got you to a certain stage may not be the same people that take you through the next five or 10 years. And uh, then with, with that, um, you know, like I said I, in my role, I talk to a number of financial financial advisors throughout you know, throughout my my weeks and months. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in in growing firms that that, that we deal with is, is they're very clear on things like their fee structures and their investment propositions. Um, would you sort of align? Would your thinking align to that in terms of having a very clear, simple, strict fee structure for clients? Um, 
or, or sort of do do you deviate? And, and and one way of growing a business, have you sort of attracted or lowered sort of fee structures to to to, to gain business? And and sort of your thinking around uh, sort of I, I, my my thought, and you could you, that's a whole other huge conversation itself. That's a that's a separate session. But there are there are ba there are various components of a financial planning business. You know, you, your, your fee model, your fee structure, your investment proposition, your, your, your client journey, how you sort of onboard and marketing. And in my opinion, having, you know, kind of overcomplicated our business over the years, in the last few years, just really simplified it. You want to just not take up energy and brain space trying to work these things out every time. You know, I, mean, I think by some of our early days, and we kind of just, even different advisors had different investment propositions, and, and it was just absolutely crazy. You want to just distill, you know, work out what is the optimal, what works best for you, whatever the fee model is, whatever the investment proposition, not saying one's better than the other, mm. and then it's just not a conversation anymore. This is how we do things here. Of course, you've got to review it from time to time, and, and, and we've you know, significantly changed things like our, our fee structure, but it's no longer a big debate, or it doesn't take out any, any time or space for us anymore. I think that's the most important thing. Just a, simplify, streamline, move on. And I think from from what I hear is that as a financial planning firm grows, the sort of the type of clients you att you attract or or take on sort of slightly sort of grows as well. So from your personal experiences, you, as you've grown businesses, uh, are you looking to set sort of minimum client sort of assets that you onboard as you, as you grow? And has that changed as, as as the company has grown in terms of that sort of minimum acceptable client level? Uh, and were you seeing that's sort of an, an acceptable way of, of of trying to grow in terms of uh, of the assets that you bring on board? That's the great debate all the time, isn't it? It's like, do you have a minimum? Do you do you, do you not, yeah. or do you not? Um, I think you can argue both ways, but I think once you've made your mind up, you can't keep fluctuating from it. So if you're deciding you've got a minimum, you have to have a minimum. If you're not then there can be like no exceptions because then it just creates confusion. And then some, you know, one of your advisors is more persuasive than the other. So whatever you decide for whatever reason, I would say if you're looking at minimums, you're looking at your profitability and manpower and whether that allows you to scale. So there are some things underneath it, not just an arbitrary, you know, are they profitable? Are you looking for assets under management because you want your multiple down the road? Like what is the reason? But whatever it is that you've decided which way, you've got to stick to it. And, and operationally, Tim, sort of scaling a business, uh, a, a lot of advisors that we do with, some of their, you know, we could call it sort of investment committee or, or, or CIPs. Um, would you, because you've, you've, you've got national structures, have you implemented sort of a relatively strict and simple uh, sort of strategy or investment proposition to follow that, that every advisor under the Rockwell sort of network, should we say, uh, sort of follows? So everyone is doing the same thing. There's not sort of, you know, different different platforms, different investment propositions, different tools to do the financial planning. Is it you, to, to scale a business, do you, do you need to have a very, a very streamlined solution in place? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you, need to, you need to know what you believe in and you need to work with people, whether employees or whatever the structures are, who believe in the same thing. So our kind of fundamental principles really is that people believe in evidence-based investing. They believe in fair fees, whether those are kind of fixed or ad valorem, as long as it's fair and consistent. Um, and they believe in proper financial planning. And I think if you do all three of those things, the clients can have good outcome. Um, and things like the investment side of things, that's the easy bit, you know, that's, that's, that's done. So, you know, you just need a CIP, you stick to it, and there are going to be exceptions, but as long as it's kind of within the kind of rules, you know, in certain places, you know, you may be able to only access, you know, maybe you can't access your core CIP for whatever reason, but as long as it's closer and, you know, fits the under, you know, underlying kind of belief system, 
then it's fine. And you're going to have some clients who maybe want to go maybe slightly more ASG, so some something more, you know, slightly more bespoke. But as long as it's within those kind of you know parameters, then it works. But you need to have at least kind of 90, 95 percent of the time it's CIP, unless there's really good reasons otherwise. And that might be legacy. So you know, just because you know. You know, someone's got an investment solution. It's not. Um, it's not CIP, but the clients had it for a few years. Doesn't mean you need to change stuff all the time. But you you shouldn't be recommending kind of new stuff to clients. It's totally off. You know, totally off the wall. It should be really, really consistent. And it just makes it more efficient. The time, the value add we do is the financial planning, is the behavioural coaching, it's not picking investments. So just simplify that. It's just yeah, better better use of time. I think what a good thing to think of is whatever decision you're making right now. If your business is ten times or a hundred times bigger. Is this going to make it really complicated or have you kind of streamlined it and you've allowed it to be scalable? So in the short term, it can feel like it's the, an easier route. But if you're 10 times bigger, you've got 10 times the assets, you've got 10 times the staff, even 100 times the staff. Is that little quirky exception to the rule that suddenly now everybody's doing? Yeah. Is that going to create carnage, big you know, opportunities for mistakes? and all that that brings, or are you keeping it tight enough that actually when you're that how many times bigger, you're going to be able to um, keep control of it and do it well? Uh, um, uh, and Alan, what I'd really love to, to then move on to is, um, is, is sort of partnership strategies that, that you maybe have taken on in place. So a lot of uh, financial planning companies that I deal with, you know, they've got partnerships with, you know, with, with accountants or law firms, or they've created their sort of centers of influence, for example. Um, what was your sort of experience on, on possibly creating a center of influence and, and, and ref, you know, client referrals to sort of to grow businesses? And also, uh, potentially, if you did partner with, say, for example, accountants and law firms and other sort of practices that possibly was part of that growth story? Yeah, um, there are, I think there's probably you know, three main ways that you would uh, grow a business in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, you need pipeline, you need new, new deal flow, as it were, new clients, new prospects. Uh, you know, there's millions of people out there, not everyone would fit, but where, where, where do you get them from? So, you know, client referrals remains, the, for most financial planning companies, it remains the biggest source, but it's just hard to, you know, it's hard to predict it, it's hard to scale that consistently, the client referrals. Um, partnerships is another uh, potentially big one. If you, it, it's, again, I find that lots of ways of doing it wrong. Um, and you know, accountants or lawyers, or whatever. They obviously, like financial planners, they're quite a mixed bag. You know, some are great, some are less less good. And the other part of that is kind of just digital, digital and content creation. That's another and an increasingly an important part of uh, business development and business growth. For us, my own experience was, and this is all kind of joined up because we go down a particular route around uh, the, the niche and the focus of the clients that we tend to look after. With you will find that in in most. Um, most industries, most sectors, and more most niches, there already are existing accountants, for example, that deal with media entrepreneurs. There are lawyers that, 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 that there's only maybe in London there's only about six specific media lawyers that tend to deal with these particular transactions, and there are corporate finance teams who deal with it. So I just want to put myself right in the middle of all that and say, you know, we we have a, a part to play. So when you're able to do that and become part of a a group of associated professionals that kind of know each other, understand each other, and we're all kind of bouncing off and referring work to each other. We found that worked in the last few years. It's worked really well. So it's our, by far, has been last few years, our single biggest source of new clients, new opportunity. And what happens is you get ideal fit prospects because everyone else is kind of already sort of pre-sold. And your conversion rate is also much higher than just getting a sort of a random internet type inquiry who's shopping around 
half dozen, half dozen of companies. So, but you got the, 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 the key word of this is being intentional, knowing exactly, don't just sort of do mass, mass mailings to local accountants in the area. That wouldn't be our experience as being a, a, a good or productive you know, use of time. Identify those that already operate within the, the niche sector and the focus that you want to, to be specialist in. Uh, and would that be your similar similar experience as well? Yeah, yeah, kind of. So I think definitely accountants. I think if you're going to work with any professionals, um, accountants, you know, don't almost don't waste your time with <laughs> solicitors because you spend years and years developing relationships, and uh, yeah, n never too productive. But accountants have really deep relationships with their clients, and they they're going to refer the right kind of clients to you. Um, but also from my experience, kind of the things that I hated doing, so I hated networking, I hated going to these kind of business breakfasts, all that stuff, I couldn't stand it. So when I set up the firm, I thought, well, I don't want to be doing that. I don't want to be going to business breakfasts and business lunches because I hate it. So the plan was to dominate local search engine optimization. So day one, I've invested heavily in SEO, still do it today, and that's been a massive bedrock of the success because inquiries come in without me having to go up and have breakfast at, you know, 6.30 a.m. with, you know, someone making chocolate or something. No, it's just, it's been a much more productive use of uh, use of my time. It's really helped scale the business. Yeah, and, and I guess that leads us to, to touch on sort of that classic sort of marketing side of, 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 of trying to grow a business. And so you've mentioned there sort of the SEO and that sort of consistent engagement on that front. Um, Obviously, everyone knows that marketing is a key fundamental for trying to grow a business. Um, but w how would you sort of track that and um, and sort of, you know, Alan, touched on being purposeful. So where would you sort of deploy that capital you think is as, as best for that sort of the sales and marketing side of trying to, to generate? Would it would it be, as, as Tim just mentioned, sort of focusing online? Uh, from a marketing perspective, or is it in going down you know, slightly more partnership routes? Uh, as, as I mentioned, I'll just jump jump in here. The, the, the answer is yes and no. You know, it's it's because everything everything's joined up. Everything is part yeah. of it. So over the last number of years, it's it's clear that we're living in an increasingly digital life. Everyone kind of lives online uh, nowadays, and people are forever you know looking at things and discovering things. And and yeah, these you know the SEO or, or just algorithms and how they work. And if you're a consistent creator. Um, see, I, I'm increasingly you know, of the belief that people engage with other human beings more than they do corporations or companies. You know, people engage with Richard Branson more than they do Virgin. They engage with Elon Musk more than they do Tesla or Twitter or, or whatever. So um, I think there is a lot of merit in promoting yourself. Everyone, everyone in this room, everyone here has got a view, got an opinion. Not everyone, will, not everyone in the world will agree with it, thankfully. And so the concept, there's, there's a well-known concept that got uh, written by a, a U.S. kind of visionary guy called A Thousand True Fans. If you have this idea, it's a great book. It was an article, actually. If, if I mean, for an, a, a, one advisor couldn't handle a thousand clients, so I talk about a hundred true fans. If you could create your own tribe of a hundred clients, you know, per advisor, who were who were paying the sort of appropriate level of fees um, to you, that's that, and then you can multiply that if you did really want to go after scale. You could have a an organization that had an, an overall corporate structure, but each individual team member or pod leader or, or advisor can create their own identity, their own personal brand. And, and will attract people who like the things that they do and say, and will actually repel others and say, I don't agree with their philosophy or their belief. Fantastic, because you only want to engage with people that you know share, as Tim said earlier on, share your kind of same outlook in life and same, same philosophy. So I'm a believer in trying to build personal brand and using and leveraging the kind of the digital algorithms that exist, rather than being a constant consumer of LinkedIn or whatever, be a creator. Yeah, I can disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Definitely the content, so you need content. If you're gonna be active digitally, you've gotta have content. So we've all invested quite heavily in the, in the content, but I've always stayed away from personal brands um, because I'm not scalable or saleable. 
you know, there's only so much you know I can do. So I've kind of always removed myself as much as possible from that kind of side of things. Really, it's more about the brand, and other people can then come in and enjoy the benefits of of brands. You know, I don't know who runs Pepsi or Coca Cola, or you know, I'm not interested in those personal brands. And there, there obviously are exceptions um, to that. But I think it's more important on the brand, getting your branding right, getting the the message of the company out there. But the, the primary thing is whatever you're going to promote, you know, personal or brands, you've got to have content it's got, and it's got to be good and it's got to be consistent. And it's like investing. You know, you can't do SEO for 12 months or two years and think you're suddenly going to be successful because it's, it's, it's not. It's probably going to take three years, five years. And the longer you do it, it's a cumulative effect. It's compounding on itself. If you're going to do marketing, you've got to commit to it. It's not a short term thing. You've got to kind of commit to it. You've got to start knowing your numbers. You've got to accept that sometimes you'll do something and it will, won't work. It will flunk. You don't have any response. There are other strategies that will be for the long game. There'll be shorter strategies. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're going to grow, grow your business, it's going to come from getting new clients in. And so if that really is where you want to go, you've got to figure out your marketing. And that's going to look a little bit different depending on what you're saying your niche is or geographically where you're looking. But if you want to grow, you've got to figure out how to do your marketing. And if it's not you that knows how to do it, then you've got to get someone else in to do it. If you're a financial planner, it's probably not you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you're great at doing good. the content, but you give the content and get your marketing person to use it, repurpose it, put it in different arenas, figure out places to put it. But if you're going to grow, marketing's got to be like top of your agenda list. Brilliant. So actually, that leads me on because the time is very quickly running out, unfortunately. Um, but a, a, a key takeaway I'd really love to get your insights on is, is if, if you don't mind, uh, and I'll start with yourself, Alan, if you don't mind, is um, it's just really sort of focusing on, on potentially one or two things um, that advisors can you know, essentially take and go away today that can maybe implement into their business tomorrow or next week or next month that can have a, an immediate impact uh, on, on, on their growth strategies. Okay, I'll give you a couple of couple of things. Uh, one one is kind of high level strategic thing, which is to is to simplify and focus on one thing. I mean, I've learned to, to my cost in the past. You try to do about ten different things at the same time. We were, you know, trying to buy businesses. We were recruiting business development managers. We were doing all, you know, changing our technology all at the same time, and it's a mess. So choose one thing. What, what is your your single growth strategy? Whatever we've all had sort of different differing views. Choose the one that works best for your organization, your company, and just stick to it. Double down and focus on it. And the second part of that, in, in, and this is a, a very specific an ex example of something that I did, and it was it, the, the, the impact was material in terms of positive and, and growth opportunities. We keep coming back to this idea of content creation. Um, it's, a re it's a real, it's a fine art, this, and I'm just trying to learn it myself. Um, I don't believe you can outsource marketing, I, I, and I've done it over the years. No one else writes or creates something in the tone that I would do or say it. It's just very, very difficult to really understand the nuances, because I've got my own personal experiences, my journey, what I've been on, and stories that I can share about you know, client, client experiences over the years. But there's a real art to creating content and, to, and writing, for example. So about, it, um, about 18 months ago, I signed up for a, a digital writing course. It's called Ship 30, uh, where, you, where you commit to writing 30 articles in 30 days, short form articles, and you just publish them, and you publish them, and you learn a hell of a lot because there's an entire, writing digital content is entirely different from like writing a book or writing even just a sort of traditional sort of old school blog. There's a particular art to it. I did that 30 day course and you got a ton of other sort of learning materials and it's really helped and we now get a lot of inbound inquiries as a result of the content creation that myself and some colleagues do as well. 
for the fans element of it too. What, what so would be your take? Yeah, you need to know what you believe in and then put it out to the world, really. So if you're writing the content yourself or your ideas and you're getting someone else to create the content, then you, you need to tell people. And also, I think one of the biggest kind of transformational things we went through, and I saw Michelle Hoskins in the back of the room at some point, but I think she might have gone, is kind of it's the going through the process of having processes and procedures is massive because that just drives efficiencies and also drives really good client experience. You don't just have a client come in and you kind of just, you know, make it up as you go. You know what the structure is every single time that every single discovery meeting that I have with a client or anyone else has in, in the firm, it's the same. It's the same every time. It's the same kind of, you know, slide deck if you like, and maybe it kind of changes slightly over time, but it's a process and you get better at doing it, you get better at delivering it, you know what works, you know what, what doesn't, and it's refined over time. And you need that with every kind of meeting structure. You just need those processes and then you need everything in the background as well. So you can focus the time on the important stuff, which is seeing clients and marketing the business. Thanks, Tim. Uh, uh, lastly? Um, I would say, do your 10-year plan. Get to some spreadsheets. Do your 10-year plan, figure out your numbers, and then take the next three years and drill down in that as to exactly what it is that you need to do. I think pacey decision-making and if you can't do it or it's not your unique ability, then you get someone else in to do it because that's how you're going to keep the machine going. It's like a snowball. It's going to be tough to get it going. And then once you've got some momentum, you need to keep it going. So I think I'm a big fan of pacey decision making, move it. And sometimes 80% has got to be good enough if you're going to keep the whole thing moving along. Thank you. Um, we have unfortunately overrun. So, uh, so lastly, I'd just like to say, obviously, a, a big thank you uh, to our panelists for sharing their, their thoughts, experiences, uh, and advice with us. Uh, thank you again for yourselves for listening in to uh, to our discussion this morning. And if, if just before we leave, just one last round of applause for our panelists for today's session. Thank you. if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline Retirement Planning Software and Bytech Low Cost Flat Fee Model Portfolio Manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on money. Until next time, thank you. Mm -hmm.